Hello, hello. Good morning, Bjorn. Good seat. We're going to go ahead and get started. So let's start off with some fun stuff today. We, um, last week we had the opportunity to have Pastor Chris sharing with us not only about our Sermon on the Mount series, but he also got to share with us about the church plant that they are going to begin next year. And we decided in, uh, when we took our offering just to give every penny that came in last week directly to helping Uncommon Church get started. And what's really exciting is that we more than doubled what we gave the week before. We got to give over $10,500 to support Uncommon Church. And here's the really fun part that I got to see. Chris kind of sent me an itemized list of the things he needed, which was about that amount. And I got to see all of the stuff that we have gotten to just... And, and it's, it's like God to say, how much does he need? I've got it. I'm going to use you. And God totally provides on our end. It's just, it, it's just thank you for participating in that. And I just thank our God for the ways that he allows us to get to see him expand his kingdom and advance his church and his purposes. So thanks for being a part of that. If you have a Bible, I got music playing up here, Pete, and I'm super ADD. This is going to drive me nuts. So I don't know how to turn it off, but I'm going to try because you can't hear it. And that's not fair to you. I don't I want to share. Just throw it down. That's a good call. I got no idea what I'm doing. Here, somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> Forget it. You'll, you'll figure it out. No, don't. Okay, you can. All right. Cool. Hi. How we doing? If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're about halfway through this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we have been walking through a conversation that it, it, this is... I would say the single most influential sermon that has ever been given. It's taking us something like 12 weeks to digest what Jesus shared with a bunch of people, first with his disciples, but then also with this menagerie of people who had come from all over the Galilean region to hear this rabbi who didn't speak like all the other rabbis. He didn't just quote what other rabbis had said before them. He spoke with authority and he backed his speech up with acts with miracles and and word had spread and people were there some of them to try to discredit him others were there hoping that he was their long-awaited messiah there were people in that audience i'm sure that day that were just longing for him to do in their lives what he had they'd heard he'd done in other people's lives they brought brokenness they brought weariness they brought parts of themselves that needed to be ministered to And then I would imagine there were probably some people there that were just there for the free donuts, right? But they were there. And Jesus used that opportunity right there at the beginning of his his public ministry to explain the difference between life in the kingdom of this world where everybody does where they see fit and life lived in the kingdom of God where we recognize God is my sovereign ruler. And I want his will to be done, not just around me, but in my own life and in my family. And so, God, have your way with me. And he he begins to explain what life looks like there. And he points out, as we saw last week, listen, you cannot serve both God and money. Money is a rival competitor for our trust. And so you can't serve both. And on the heels of that, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, 
or I'm sorry, verse 25, he continues that line of thinking. I want us to recognize that what we talked about last week flows directly into what we're talking about this week. He says, therefore, you can't serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you much more valuable than they are? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? Look at the flowers of the fields and how they grow. They don't labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Now, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, here one moment and gone the next, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the Gentiles, those who do not have any sort of relationship with God, who cannot place their faith in him, the pagans run after those things. And besides, your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So, the point that Jesus is trying to drive home is do not worry, which is pretty straightforward, right? You you go to the doctor, they found a lump, don't worry fine. You don't have enough money to pay this month's rent. Don't worry. Your kids are starting to hang out with a crowd that that are driving them down the wrong path, or maybe they're making some choices that you would not choose for them, and you see what is leading them towards. Don't worry. Maybe you got a letter from the IRS. Don't, don't worry, right? Do you guys feel better now? <laughs> 13 years of marriage. This is one thing I've learned. When my wife is worried about something, if I simply tell her don't worry, that won't make her worry less. If anything, it will make her worry and angry. So how is this any different than some platitude, don't worry, be happy? How is this different from that? I'm going to answer that, but before we get there, I want to back up a step and I want to ask a different question. Where does worry come from? Fear. I think that, that fear is great. Yeah, fear. Worry comes from the devil. That's right. I like that. But, but fear really is underneath it, right? Worry is our humanistic way of dealing with the things that we fear, trying to somehow gain control over the areas that we feel least in control. And so I'm afraid of, uh, you know, making sure that my family is fed. And so I'm going to worry about how I'm going to feed and provide for them and worry about work if I don't have enough work to be able to make sure that I have enough coming in. I worry about my body um, breaking down or the pain that I feel in my back. I don't know what's going on. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, how can I fix that? What can I do about that? I worry about my children and the choices that they're making. And so I, 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 I'm up at night and I'm just mulling over it. And underneath our worry is this belief 
that ultimately it's up to us, that it all lands upon our shoulders, that by our worrying, we can somehow change the outcome. That if we worry enough, we can protect ourselves and the people that we care the most about from the worst case scenario. But if we don't worry about it, if we lay those things down and just go on with life, that somehow we will be blindsided by the worst case scenario. That we will be, we will be unprepared for what's coming. And so, of course, we are willing to sacrifice a little bit of our comfort now. We are willing to put up with a little bit less sleep. We're willing to put up with indigestion or, or, or muscle, muscle tension. If it will mean preparing ourselves just in case that worst case scenario happens. Because the worst thing in the world in our minds is to be blindsided by that. To be taken unaware and to then think, I should have known. And again, to reiterate something I just said, underneath our worry is the belief that it ultimately lands on our shoulders. That we are responsible for protecting ourselves and the people that we care about. And so we go out of our way to begin tracking down every possible scenario. And what would I do if this happened? And what would happen if this person said this? And what if I tried this? How would they respond and how would I respond back? And we start playing all of these scenarios out, trying to prepare our hearts just in case so that we will not be blindsided by it. I lost my train of thought. Give me a second. All right. At its foundation, worry grows out of the soil of distrust. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because we tend, we tend to look to people and say, do you have my best interest in mind? Are you going to care for me? Because let's be honest with, you, with one another here. Our kids don't wake up worried whether they're going to have enough to eat. Our kids don't wake up wondering whether they're going to have something to wear. They naturally trust that they will be fed and they will be clothed. And that's as it should be. As parents, we have a responsibility to care for our children, to make sure they're fed, to make sure they're clothed. But... What if one day they wake up and there isn't enough food for a meal? There is no food in the refrigerator and they have to go to school hungry. Or they wake up one day and there are no clean clothes for them to wear so they have to climb back into the same dirty clothes that they wore the day before or the day before that. And suddenly they have to start thinking, maybe, maybe I can't just expect that I'm going to be fed, that I'm going to be clothed. And so they begin to take up some of their mental space trying to figure out how can I make sure that I've got enough, that I'm getting fed. How can I figure this out to make sure that I get some food? How can I change what I'm wearing so, even the, so my friends won't laugh at me because I'm wearing the same thing again and again and again? And the more that they have to shoulder the burden of responsibility, the more they... It begins to undermine the trust that they have in the very people that should have been responsible for them, the ones that they should have begun or been able to depend upon. And in the same way, 
we have this tendency to look at the things in our life and say, what if? I, 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 I would hope that God would protect me from this, but what if he can't? And so out of the soil of distrust, worry begins to grow because I can't trust this person or I can't trust this person to protect me from the things that I fear. So therefore, I have to make sure that I am okay. And our worry is our attempt to gain control over the areas that we feel least in control. We fixate and we strategize and we prepare. We feel like if we can't garner control over those things that we feel out of control in, let me see if you notice this. When we feel like, I don't feel in control here, I want to be in control here, and you've been mulling over it, and you can't come up with the answer, and so what do we do? we begin to turn to other things around us that we think can give us control over those things. We begin to turn to things that promise us control in areas that we feel out of control. And we're going to just come up with a term here to use for this. We'll call these pseudo-saviors. Things that we turn to to save us from the things that we fear. And by the way, this is nothing new. This goes all the way back to our most ancient ancestors in Adam and Eve. Because think about the Garden of Eden for a moment. We often focus on the fruit that they ate and the sin that happened and the ramifications of that choice. But have you ever considered why they chose that fruit? Why they chose to eat and disobey God? I will tell you, that decision did not start with the, uh, the, the beauty of the fruit or how delicious it looked. It actually began with their perception of God. Because when the serpent came uh, you know, into the garden looking at him, he didn't start by saying, look at that fruit, doesn't it look delicious? Instead, he pointed to God and said, did God really say not to touch that? You're not going to die. He's lying to you. Don't you realize he's been holding out on you this whole time? He made you deficient. He didn't tell you about good and evil, did he? Yeah because he doesn't want you to be like him. But that fruit, that fruit can give you the ability to be like him, knowing good and evil. Suddenly, Adam and Eve, think about the one that created them, the one that had given them this garden called delight. That's what Eden means. This garden where everything that they needed was within their, their grasp, where they had one another and they got to walk with him. And they began to go, is he really holding out on us? Did he really make us deficient? Suddenly they look at themselves and for the first time there's some sense of dissatisfaction and they say, you're right. We don't know the difference between good and evil and we need to know that. And then, and only then, when the foundation of their trust and their creator has been undermined, do they look at the fruit and it begins to hold some allure for them. That can give us what he's withheld, whether unintentionally or intentionally. And then they reach for it and they take it and they bite into it. And in that moment, their eyes are open. And in their, their understanding of good and evil, they recognize what they've just done. And shame and guilt come crashing into this beautiful creation. And it warps their perception of themselves to the point where they feel like they need to go hide. They, it warps their perception of one another. They try to kind of protect themselves from being uh, you know, vulnerable to one another, and ultimately it sends them into hiding from their creator. 
And so I ask you, since this is something that it looks like we have a tendency as humanity to run towards, what are your pseudo-saviors? What are the things when your life begins to feel a little bit out of control? When you feel like you don't have it all together, and try as you might, you just can't wrap your arms around it, what are the things that you run to? Money would be an easy one, right? Money is everybody's pseudo-savior. It, it is that thing that we want to make sure we get enough of so that it forms that safety net in our lives. So when that rainy day comes, when, not if, we've got that to fall back on. And that is part of what money is. And partially, that is good fiscal responsibility is to save and not just be blasé. However, Jesus even recognized how that thing, money, could become in our lives a competition with God, which is why before he even embarks on this discussion about not worrying, he begins by identifying the single greatest pseudo-savior for just about all of us. You cannot serve both God and money. So while you're going to be interacting, money is not evil in and of itself. The love of money, the worship of money, the looking to money to be your savior, that is the root of evil. That's what causes us to begin to compete with one another and sacrifice time with our family in order to get just a little bit more. So it's a huge one, one that Jesus identified at the beginning of this discussion of not worrying. But it's certainly not the only one. Another one that we tend to worship in our society is our youth and, and our strength, our own abilities to do things. We live in a society that, that celebrates youthfulness. Often to the detriment of, of the wisdom that has been that can only be garnered through generations of walking and learning and, and stumbling into the same things that we then, if we are unwilling to learn from those of you who have gone before, we are destined to repeat the same mistakes you made. And so sometimes we just kind of say, hey, we got this. And I'm so grateful that I have a, a group of men and women, many of whom are several decades older than me, that sit in, in the leadership and, and spiritual oversight of this church. I got to sit with them over this entire weekend, Friday night and all of Saturday, where we were beginning to pray and, and, and cast a vision for 2018. And I'm so thankful that I've got people who have been walking with Jesus far longer than I have, who are walking with me in the preparation for the care for this church. But we also worship youth in the sense that we think that so long as we're young, so long as we're spry, so long as we have energy, we can handle any obstacle that we come to. And so we do it in our own strength. And we try to figure out how we can surmount those things by our own ingenuity. And we try to keep ourselves youthful. So we, we eat organic and we take supplements. You've got to have doTERRA oil. Do not forget. Here's my dealer over here. Um, <laughs> We, we exercise, some of you, to the point of working your body into, you know, CrossFit. I've seen a lot of people getting injured. I'm not, I'm not railing against that. I'm sorry. Um, you know, we will sacrifice sleep. We will do all of these things. We will, we will have people surgically alter the look of our bodies so that we can somehow stave off, I would suggest futilely, stave off our own mortality. Because so long as we're young, we can be in control and we don't actually have to be dependent upon God. Another pseudo-savior in our culture, for some of us, would be 
a political party or even a particular politician. And so long as that party is in control, so long as the person that we voted for gets elected, we feel as if we have some semblance of control. We feel like what we want to happen will happen. But if the other party is in control, or the person that we chose not to vote for gets elected into office, suddenly we lose our collective minds because (gasps) we don't have control. As if we ever had control to begin with, right? These are just a couple of the pseudo-saviors that we celebrate and worship and, and bow down on the altar of our lives to, thinking that they can somehow protect us from the things where we feel out of control, protect us from the things that we are afraid of. And ultimately, like any idol that we see throughout the biblical interactions, like any idol, they are utterly powerless to protect us from the things that we are afraid of. And so Jesus says, oh, I I guess I should ask a question, so what's the alternative, right? What's the alternative to worshiping these things and and saying, I'm going to order my life, because that's really all worship is, is ordering our lives around this thing. We are ascribing worth to it. If you worship a band You're going to sacrifice time by getting up early to get in line to get tickets, to go to a show that you're going to pay your good money for, to sing songs that you were singing in your car on the way there that you've heard a million times because they are just the most wonderful thing in the world. And if you worship being in shape, you're going to sacrifice sleep to go to the gym. You're going to sacrifice the ability to eat anything that you want. Do you see how we order our lives around the things that matter most to us, the things that we worship? And what's the alternative to worshiping these things? Well, Jesus would point to God and say, He is the only one worth ordering our lives around. He is the one that's in control. So let's go back to this for a moment. Jesus says, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food? It isn't your body more than clothes. I mean, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't store away in barns, and yet your Father God provides for them. And aren't you so much more valuable to Him than they are? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single moment to your life? Jesus reminds us, that we don't have the ability to change the outcome. Our worrying, and by the way, do you realize that worrying can mean being anxious and, and stuff, but worry is another word that we use for when a dog is chewing a bone. It's called worrying the bone. That's gnawing on that thing. You've seen a dog, maybe you have a dog, and they're just on that thing. It's not really doing anything to the bone. It's just more like just keeping them preoccupied. And that's precisely what our worry does. It doesn't change the outcome. It simply steals from us the joy of the moments that we have. It distracts us. I got a perfect picture of that over Thanksgiving. My wife and I and the boys uh, went to go visit my extended family out in Riverside, and so we're driving along the 91 freeway, and I didn't realize that they opened a second leg of the, um, the toll road. 
So, yeah, I, I got into the diamond lane, completely disregarding the signs that said, expressway only, stay out, diamond lane, don't go in here. Suddenly, I realized that once all of the, the, the like, pillars along the road that won't let you out started again, and I'm like, okay, is there a space that I can, like, jog out of this? And all of a sudden, we have to go into the thing where it takes a picture, and I go, I'm going to get a ticket. And the f- most frustrating part of this whole thing was that the traffic outside of these cones was going just as quickly as we were. So I go, Kathy, figure out how we can get out of this. And so she starts looking on her phone. She's like, oh, it's like a $25 uh, thing. It's not a big deal. I'm like, ah, $25. They're going the same speed we are. <laughs> we get to my, my aunt and uncle's house in Riverside. I'm surrounded with my family, sitting next to my father at the pool with my boys at, swimming in the pool with one of their cousins. And I'm numb to all of it because in my mind, I'm trying to noodle out how I can save $25. How on earth can I get out of this? I start building my, my case in my mind. It, the signs weren't big enough. I need flashing light. They probably had those. I just didn't see them. You know, expressway sounds a whole lot like diamond lane. I mean, those things are almost synonymous, right? I didn't know. Have compassion on me, a sinner, Right? And I'm building my case about why they should drop it. The most frustrating thing in the world, however, was it was Thanksgiving Day, so all the people at the express lane toll places were gone home with their family to celebrate Thanksgiving, so they weren't even there to take my call to hear my beautifully thought-out explanation for why I should be free of a ticket. So I had to hole all of this up in my gray area. And after sitting with this for probably about an hour, and just frustrated and gnawing on it, I did what any rational person would do in that situation. Pulled out my phone, went to my Amazon app, and started shopping. (laughs) Because the best way to deal with losing money is to spend money, I found. (laughs) Judge me. You know, I don't care. Isn't that like human nature as well, isn't it, right? We, We see something that brings us fear. We, we don't feel in control, so we try to figure out how we can get control. We can't find control. We look for pseudo-saviors that can save us. We don't find one that totally satisfies, and so we, find, we turn to something that can numb it out for us. For me, it was shopping that day. It was also food. There was a lot of pie. <laughs> but, but it's other things. We turn to television, pornography, Drugs, alcohol, cigarettes. Some of it, some, for some people, it's exercise. For others, it's just busyness and doing stuff. I find that when Kathy and I get in a fight and I'm frustrated and I don't know what to do with it, I clean. I think she starts fights just to get me to actually clean the garage sometimes. It's fine. Right? But we do something to distract ourselves because the feeling of feeling out of control is so overwhelmingly, ah, we want to get it as far away from us. So we either try to find something that can fix it for us or we'll turn to something to can anesthetize us from that feeling. I'm probably the only one that feels that way, huh? No. I think that we all recognize how we do that. And now, what is the alternative? Look at verse 31. Because Jesus speaks directly to us. And by the way, this is the reason why what Jesus is saying is different from some superficial platitude. He's not simply saying, don't worry, be happy. He's saying, don't worry, because 
His words and his confidence is built off of the foundation of a trust in God. It's built off of the understanding that while we get fixated on this kingdom around us, on our own little kingdoms that we are trying to build, we are actually citizens of a different kingdom. We have a king who is God. And, and the thing that it's built off of is the understanding that our king, our God, is truly God. And this king who is truly God is also good and loving and patient and gracious. And our king is for us. That is the foundation upon which Jesus speaks into our lives, don't worry. Now, you're not worrying as, as, as the non-believers around you who don't have God to turn to, who don't have God to found their trust on. You are a citizen and a son or a daughter of the king. And because of that, you can rest in the knowledge that he is for you. He is with you. And that regardless of what happens, He will be walking through that with you. No, we're not promised easy, carefree lives. No, we're not promised that whatever we want will ultimately be the outcome. No, I'm not promised that that $25 fine will get waived. No, you're not promised that that lump will be benign. No, you are not promised that your children will not go through trouble and that they will not stumble and fall. No, you're not promised that every single penny that you need to pay your rent this month will come in in that way. No, you're not promised that your job will keep you on when they're going through layoffs. But you are promised that he will neither leave you nor forsake you and that you are not alone in this and that your God is ultimately God and you are not. So who are you going to rely on, right? So verse 31. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the world, those who don't know God, run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So instead of gnawing on that worry, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, clear as mud, right? Something that we throw around, something that we, has almost become that, that kind of Christianese platitude. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all those things will be added to you as well. We sing about it. But what does that really mean? Let's keep in mind that we are talking about two dueling kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, where God is sovereign and where we ultimately say, God, I want your will to be done. And then our own little kingdoms, the ones that we are trying to build, the ones that we are trying to advance, the ones that getting that letter in the mail from the IRS really undermines. The one that going to the doctor because you've been having those issues and you're not sure if it's cancer or if you've got a degenerative disc or something really undermines your sovereignty, the one where the, 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 the bickering you've been having with your spouse 
or the choices that your children have been making really undermines the plans that you had. And he is coming about it from the perspective, seek first his kingdom, which is, by the way, your kingdom, because you're a citizen of his kingdom. He's God, you're not. And when we fix our eyes on him, what will naturally happen is it's not that we just disregard the things that we are afraid of. It's not that we just disregard the responsibilities that we have been entrusted with, like raising our children or dealing with this letter from the IRS or dealing with the, the agreements that you've made and figuring out those things. It's not like those disappear, but what we do is we put them into their proper place. We take, when we are fixated on our own kingdom, it's almost like we put those at the top. This is the most important thing. That letter I just got is the most important thing. What goes on in my children's life is the most important thing. What's going on with my body is the most important thing. And then you come to church on Sunday and you sing, Hallelujah, I love you, but really that's just more of a peripheral item. You sit on the throne of your life. And when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, what we do is we remove ourselves and our own momentary needs that are, that are basically made up of all of our immediate circumstances and we pull them off the throne and we put God back onto his rightful place at the throne of our lives. We say, God, I want to focus on you. God, I want your will to be done in my life. And I bring you all of these things because I'm a citizen of your kingdom. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. You actually care about these things. But they are not the be-all, end-all. What you want is. So would you give me perspective? Will you show me what matters to you? And when we do that, Suddenly, the things that we've been fixated on, the things that have been dominating our thought life and we've been gnawing on, begin to lose their power in the light of the kingdom. I I, I think of that old hymn that we sometimes sing, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Because the truth of the matter is, the things of our lives can easily overwhelm us. The things of our lives can easily swamp us if that's all we're thinking about, if that's all we're focused on. If we lose the ballast in our lives, which is being rooted in our relationship with God, if we take our eyes off of true north, we easily can get caught in the doldrums of life and just tossed back and forth by our circumstances. Hi. Cool. And it can easily completely take us off. And it it makes me think of Peter. Remember that moment in, in, in... in Jesus's ministry where he's walking along the water because he sent his guys off ahead and he went up on the mountain to spend some extra time with God because he just, he honestly needed to be refilled himself. If Jesus needed that, by the way, we probably do as well, but that's another conversation. And so Jesus now is going to go catch up to his guys. So he, he just decides to take the most direct route and just walk across the water. And Peter sees this and, go, and everyone's going, it's a ghost. And Peter's like, I think it's Jesus. And they're like, oh, no way. He's like, watch this. Jesus, if that's really you, Tell me to come out till you see you. He's like, 
Come on, dude. So Peter's like, seriously, this is amazing. And he gets out, he takes that first step, he takes a sack, he's like, I'm doing it, you know, and I'm sure he's probably doing like the baby, like learning how to walk thing. And he sti- and then he remembers, I can't walk on water. And he was totally right. And then he starts looking around at the wind and the waves and going, there are storms, there's a storm going on right now, which was true too, and it was always going on. And by taking his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. Because he could not possibly hold himself above the water. And he never was. Jesus was. But when he began to focus on the circumstances around him rather than focusing on Jesus, he got wet. And the same thing holds true for us. When we fixate on our circumstances, they will, ob- they will often capsize us, overwhelm us, completely knock us off our pegs. Some of you are there right now. You're up to here in the water, and you are treading water just going, I don't know if I can make it another day. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're worried about many, many things. But there's only one thing that's really important. Overarching all of these things is to keep your eyes on me. Seek first my kingdom. Learn to live as a citizen of my kingdom, which ultimately will will put us into right standing. Just, Just follow me. Learn from me. Model your life after me. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And all of those other things that seem so overwhelming will be taken care of as well. Just don't take your eyes off of me. I got a beautiful picture of what that looks like this week when I went and visited our friend Tony Peck over at the hospital. Tony's had a really rough week. 2.30 last Sunday morning, he was rushed to Hogue Hospital because of intense intestinal pain. When he got to Hogue, which is the hospital that he always goes to, he was informed that his new oncologist did not have the right to go there and serve there, so he got shipped over to some other hospital that he'd never been to before. Spent the next two days in utter agony without any sort of antibiotics because they weren't sure what was going on and they just, whatever. And so when I saw him on Tuesday, he looked, he looked like he was going through labor. It's the best way I can describe it. Because I would sit in there and he has this big smile on his face and all of a sudden he would be gripped by contractions in his intestines as it's trying to force through the infection and the whatever's going on in there. And we still don't at this moment know what's going on in there. And we keep praying for him. But he would stop and then he would be back and he would smile again. The pain, however, was not the most remarkable part about what was going on with Tony. And it is always so hard to see somebody who is a rock in your own life just put on their back in a hospital bed. But what was most remarkable about my buddy Tony is that in the midst of this, in between contractions, he wasn't focused on his circumstances. He was focused on his father. And he goes, I don't know why I'm here. And you know, you, if you know Tony, you know the smile. Like, this is a big thing. I don't know why I'm here, but I can't wait to see how God uses me here. And man, when, I get, when I'm able to walk around, I can't wait to go into these rooms and just give hope to the people who are here. 
And I just, I've been talking with the nurses and, and I go, hey, Tony, I brought you some of the invitations to our Christmas thing. I brought you one of the books we're giving out to people. He almost broke into tears. He's like, I know exactly who I'm giving these to. And it was just like, this man was at his, at a very, very low point. And yet he was not fixated on his circumstances. He was fixated on his father. And he goes, he's who matters. I'm seeking first his kingdom. He didn't use these words, but holy moly did his actions scream it. I am seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, and God has got him in his hands. So we pray for Tony. I got a second picture of it this week because sometimes I'm hard-headed and God needs to remind me. Same time last week on Thanksgiving Matthew Aragon, seven years old, was rushed into the hospital out in Ohio where they were visiting in-laws because his appendix was ready to burst. And they had to operate on a seven-year-old to take his appendix out. And while he was under anesthetization, he aspirated stuff and his lungs got messed up. And now he has also bile. In, so it must have, his, his appendix must have burst because he has bile in his intestines and there's infection going on in there. And they have not been able to give him water. They have been not, they've tried to give him a muffin yesterday for the first time since Thanksgiving to try to get him to eat something, and he threw that up. And they've been thinking, it's getting better, and it doesn't, and then it doesn't. And it's getting better, and we're not sure. And we've been communicating with Amy, his mom, who's a single mother. He's already lost the father of her children. She was out visiting his family. And all of a sudden, this happens to her youngest son. And can you imagine how out of control you would feel? And yet through this entire thing, Amy has not been, she hasn't been ignoring the fact that it's hard. She hasn't been ignoring the fact that she's exhausted. But the hope that she has had through this, the peace that she has had, that God is still with her and he is ultimately walking her through this. And then she reaches out to her family. And many of you have been a a support to her during this time, have been praying have been basically saying, anything you need, we are here for you. But the greatest way we've been able to support her is just simply being prayer warriors for her and her son Matthew and for Sammy, his older brother. And the, the, I wish I, could, I had the time to read you the, the text message we got yesterday. Because in no way was it, hey, he's good, we're coming home, which would have been what we tend to say, but it's in, it's in process. They still don't have all the answers. They don't know when they're going to be coming home. But she has utter faith that God has got her and is walking him, her through this. And because of that, she has peace. There's a verse in Philippians where Paul was writing to a group of people who were also embroiled in a world that would have loved to see them stumble and fall. And Paul writes this. Can we throw Philippians 4, 6 up there? Do not... Be anxious. And by the way, that word anxious is exactly the same Greek word as Jesus uses worry. Anxious worry, synonymous, and it's the same Greek word. Do not be anxious or do not worry about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, knowing who it is we're talking to and knowing how good he is, Present your request to God. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that we're supposed to just pretend they don't exist. We can bring our things to our Father God because he loves us and he cares about us. And what will happen if we do? The peace of God, 
which transcends all understanding, which transcends our circumstances, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Because if we dwell on them, we will go, I have no control. Ah." We'll think, how can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? We'll start running to all of these things that promise us that they can save us from them when they really can't. Or we'll just try to numb it out. But if we fix our eyes on him, and we bring our needs to him, and we remember that you are God, and you are good, and you are for me, then it gives us utter peace that transcends our circumstances. So my prayer for you this morning is that you would find peace in following your shepherd. It may, following him may lead you through some dark valleys. There may be some times where he needs to correct you. There may be some enemies that are prowling around that he has to protect you from. But may you never forget that he is your shepherd. He loves you. And he has done everything in his power to make sure that you can be in relationship with him to the point of sending Jesus to die for us. So stop trying to to stay afloat on your own. Stop trying to keep your head above the waves and let him help you to hold you up. Let him put your life into perspective. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that you are not some absentee landlord that created this world and then stepped back to watch it spin out of control. I thank you that you are a God who, although transcendent, you become intimately and imminently involved in our lives. And although we can't change a moment of our lives through our worrying, you say, bring it to me. Cast your cares upon me, and I'll give you rest. Not only that, but I will show you how I want to use you in the midst of your circumstances to be a blessing and to shine the light of the hope that you have found in me into your community, into your home. Father, help us to rest in you. Help us to cease worrying and instead help us to worship you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.